We thank you, our Father, for your faithfulness. You have not forgotten Israel. You are faithful to Israel, both for her sake and for yours. You're faithful to her to save her, and that is to her benefit and for her good. And in saving her, you are also faithful to yourself. It is for your glory that you have redeemed Israel. It is for your glory that you redeem any man. And might these truths warm our hearts this morning. Might these truths make us to be confident in you. Might the truths that we unfold this morning from your word make us to understand the greatness of your faithfulness, the security of your promises. Might that lead us to be confident in you. And as we are confident in you, would you also transform our lives and make us to be like our Savior, whom we love and whom has loved us. We pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. There are some things that we do not like to speak about or think about. For instance, we we don't like to think about our bank balance and our finances when there's been too much month and not enough money. And so we get the statement on the first and we think, well, I'll do that later this week. And then it's the seventh and then it's the tenth and the twelfth and the fifteenth. And we're thinking, I really should balance my bank account to see how much money is there or not there. Um, But I really don't want to do that. And so we procrastinate and procrastinate and procrastinate. My personal record, and it's been a long time by the grace of God, but my personal record, I think, is six months without balancing a checkbook. And, and I don't advise that. It's really not a smart move. We, we don't like to talk about conflict. We don't like to talk about the sin that causes conflict in our relationships. When, when I was candidating many years ago here, I was asked the question in one of the open forums, how do you handle conflict? I remember the question. I don't remember my answer. It's because the question was more memorable than my answer, I suppose. And I, I do remember thinking afterwards, though, that I probably stated my case a little bit more ambitiously and confidently than I really should have. Because I don't like conflict. I don't know about you, but I really don't care for conflict. We don't like to have the birds and bees talk with our children. Uh, numerous numbers of you have over the years contacted me and said, do you have any information on how I can have the talk with my teenager? We, we don't like it when our bosses say, um, I need you to see, I need to see you in my office alone now. Um, That always raises a little bit of fear and trepidation in our hearts. And some of us don't like it when the preacher says the topic of this morning's sermon is divine election. Uh, I I know that when I say those words that some of you are bowing up and you're resistant. It's been that way the whole time I've been here, and and I suppose it shall be until Christ returns. Some of these conversations are difficult. Some of, you know, looking at a checkbook when you don't want to look at a checkbook is difficult but it's good to do it. And hearing sermons that may be not um, palatable to us initially might be difficult, but it's good for our souls to hear what the Word of God has to say. This passage that is in front of us 
really all of chapters 9 to 11, um, place an emphasis on the greatness and the supremacy of God. It would have us to know just how great and how magnificent God is in working our salvation. It is, it is God pulling back the curtains so that we can see behind our reality into the inner workings of the Godhead and what God has done to accomplish our salvation. And what Paul would have us particularly to note in these verses as we look at 9, 14 to 18 is of, of God's faithfulness to us, of God's faithfulness to His promises. We've said for a number of weeks that salvation is always the result of God's sovereign, merciful, faithful choice. If we are saved, we know that there is, there is God behind the curtain working it out according to His sovereign will, His merciful will, and His faithful choosing. We have noted that there are five demonstrations of God's faithfulness in these verses, verses 6 to 18. And we have seen the first four of these already in previous weeks. And we want to particularly draw attention to the fifth demonstration of God's faithfulness this morning. Just by very quick way of reminder, let me draw attention to the fact that God is faithful just by way of reminder His promises don't fail. Remember, chapter 8, Paul is finishing the section on justification and then chapters 5 to 8 on sanctification. It's been this glorious passage, a glorious chapter about the Spirit working sanctification in our lives, the the Spirit taking the truth of justification and and plumbing it deep down into our lives to, to change and transform us. And what a glorious truth that is, but as he transitions to chapter 9, it's a very abrupt change that the Apostle makes, and it it seems that the Apostle is is addressing the question, so Paul, that's great, everything you've said about salvation is great, but, but God also made a promise to Israel back in Genesis chapter 12, and the nation of Israel has not yet been redeemed as a nation. Sure, there are individuals that have been saved, but but the entire nation that God promised would be saved still hasn't been saved. Has God been unfaithful to Israel? And if God is unfaithful to Israel, will He also be unfaithful to us? We, we, we know that Israel had a supreme blessing that's given to us in the first verses of chapter 9 as Paul recounts with grief the, the sorrow over Israel's unbelief in spite of the fact of all that they had been given And then he asks the question in verse 6, or makes the statement rather in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though, not just the word of God, but the promises of God, the covenant of God has failed. It's not as though God spoke to Abraham and then failed to keep his promises to Abraham. God, God is a faithful God. His promises do not fail because God is God. God must be faithful to His promises. Israel, Paul is asserting, will be saved as a nation and Gentiles also will be saved along with the nation of Israel and they will receive the fullness of the salvation that has been promised to them. There's a second realm in which God is faithful. He is faithful also 
in this, verse 6, that his election does not fail. The reason he says that God's promises haven't failed is for, verse 6, or because they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, there are some who are in the nation of Israel. They are descendants of Abraham. They have that physical heritage and lineage, but they are not a true Israel. They do not really believe in the promise of the Messiah that was made to Abraham. So they are not descendants In the true sense of the word, spiritually, they are not spiritual descendants, even though they are physical descendants. But but Paul is not just saying that. He's also also alluding to or um, previewing what he will say in the remainder of this chapter, that not all Israel are, are Israel because not all Israel has been chosen. In other words, not all individuals within the nation of Israel have been chosen for salvation. They've not been elected to salvation because we know that if God has elected some, they will receive the salvation that has been promised to them. He has chosen who will be saved and all He chooses will be saved. God is faithful to His elective promises. And then the Apostle gives us three illustrations of God's elective plan. Uh, starting with Isaac in verses 7 to 9. And from Isaac we see that God is faithful in this, that his election of Isaac is typical. His election of Isaac is typical of the way all men are elected to salvation. That is verse 7, God makes a call. So through Isaac, so God determines that the promise to Abraham will be made through Isaac and not Ishmael. So he has accepted Isaac as the means for the fulfillment of the promise and rejected Ishmael as the fulfillment of the promise. And then he says, your descendants will be named. That is, your descendants will be called. Your descendants will be drawn. Your descendants will not only be named and identified, but they will be drawn and compelled and brought into the fulfillment of the promises. So God makes a call. Then verse 8, God makes a promise. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So if you want to be a descendant of Abraham, you have to be one who is a child of the promise. So God has to have made a promise so that you can come into um, a saving relationship with God. So the promise is God's elective Plan. And then verse 9 reminds us that not just God made a call and God made a promise, but that God alone is acting on behalf of that. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And the point is that it's God acting. I will come. I will act. I will accomplish. Sarah can't have a child on her own, but she will have a child only because I have acted on her behalf. So God is faithful. His election of Isaac is typical. But then notice verse 10. He says, and not only this, in other words, it's not just the life of Isaac in which we see this truth, but it's also in the life of Jacob and Isaac's wife, Rebekah, in the birth of Jacob and Esau. And here we see God is faithful. His purposes will stand. So God's plan of, God's plan of election is demonstrated in Isaac, and we see that particularly in verse 11. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so there was nothing in their physical lineage, there was nothing in their morality that would either draw God to one of them or move God away from one of them. There was nothing to predispose God to act on either of their behalfs. 
Instead, he says, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. So God had a purpose. God chose Jacob to accomplish his purpose, his will, his plan, his intention. So he draws Jacob for his own particular purposes. And that purpose is worked out according to his choice. And that word choice is the word election. So God elected and designed and planned for uh, Jacob's uh, fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. And it wasn't just that God purposed. It wasn't just that God elected. But notice the end of the verse this would be so that his plan could stand, not that man's plan could stand, but so that his plan could stand, that it could remain firmly rooted and permanent. And this is not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it's not works that accomplish this, this. It is solely the work of God in calling men to salvation. And so from start to finish... Paul would say everything about our salvation is all of God and that's what makes it secure. God's promise to Israel has not failed and His word of promise to us for salvation will not fail. Now, there is a, a difficulty in this discussion with eyes, uh, w- uh, uh, this discussion about Jacob and it is the question about verse 13, what about God's hatred of Esau? So he says in verse 13, just as it is written, so his prerogative to choose Jacob is given to us here in Malachi chapter 1. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And the question is, that always arises, isn't that unfair? In fact, it's going to be stated in verse 14. Isn't that unfair that God would love Jacob and hate Esau? And it's important for us to remember exactly what is going on here. So when he says, Jacob I loved, remember, he's not talking about Jacob the person. Malachi makes clear that he's talking about Jacob the nation, the nation of Israel. So Jacob and Israel were used interchangeably. Jacob actually took the name Israel later on. And then the nation also periodically was called Jacob, just as Esau was also used as a name for Edom, and Edom was used as a name for Esau. So there's this back and forth, but Malachi makes clear he's not talking about the men as individuals, he's talking about the nation, and he says, Jacob I loved. In other words, I, I fulfilled my promise to Abraham in the nation of Israel. Israel is the covenantal people of God, and I have chosen them out of love. And so we've looked several times at Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God chose them not because they were great, not because they were so magnificent, but God chose them because He simply loved them. It was, it was a manifestation of His grace. In fact, we don't have time to look at it, but I commend to you Ezekiel chapter 16. Maybe go home this afternoon and read that chapter, and you'll see Israel's poor position and how they, they brought nothing to the table that was redemptive in nature, and God saved them anyway out of His covenantal love towards them. So God loved them with a particular kind of love by which he chose the nation of Israel to be his. But he says, verse 13, Esau I hated. Um, That word hate is an expression of God's wrath against sinners who have rejected him. And it's important we think carefully about this. This does not mean that God hated them for their non-election. 
but it simply means because they were not chosen, because they, they did not trust in the Messiah, because they were not the Messiah's nation, they remained in the condition in which they were born. That is, they remained under God's wrath and under God's condemnation and under God's judgment, and He hated them in that way. He hated them as the recipients of His wrath and His judgment. He does not hate them for their non-election. He hates them for their rebellion and their unbelief. D.A. Carson, in his helpful book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, helps us with this truth. He says, God's wrath is not an implacable blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against His holiness. God in His perfections must be wrathful against His rebel image bearers for they have offended Him. So like His wrath, God's hatred of Edom and Esau is His response to sin. It is is God's hatred of sin and he's not putting them in a note that he's not putting them in a place where they didn't previously exist. They already were in sin. They just haven't been chosen out of it and redeemed out of it. So they have remained there objects of his wrath and objects of his hatred. It is not fair, excuse me, it is not unfair that God hates Esau. Esau and Edom have simply remained where it was as a rejecter of God underneath his wrath, underneath his condemnation. Esau, when, when, when Paul quotes Malachi 1 in verse 13 and says, Esau I hated, Esau is not receiving anything that he did not deserve. He is not receiving anything that is unfair. He is not receiving from God any injustice by being hated by him. Esau is receiving exactly what he deserved. Esau is receiving full justice. And so we would say, it is never unfair for God to hate sinners. His hatred of sin and his hatred of sinners is always just and righteous. Frankly, what's unjust and what's amazing grace is that God loves sinners. That God, that God loves anyone. That God would choose to pour out his mercy on anyone And that's the Apostle's next point. Number five, God is faithful. His non-election of Pharaoh is just. His non-election of Pharaoh is just. Now, verse 14, as I've already alluded to, raises an objection. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. That's not fair, would be the natural response. And Paul picks up that idea in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. What, what should we say to this? If, if we see some great truth like this and some truth that we think is hard to bear, should we just go to the natural inclination and say that's not fair? That it's unjust? And Paul says absolutely, unequivocally, no. May it never be. May, may that kind of thinking never come into existence. May that never be a reality. That's, that's impossible. Such an idea is abhorrent to us. Notice that the apostle 
is picking up a theme that he has picked up previously in Romans chapter 3. In fact, if you just keep your finger in Romans 9 and jump back to chapter 3, he has talked previously in chapter 3 about the position of, of the Jews and, and how they were um, chosen by God to be His and they, they had advantage. They were entrusted with the Scriptures. That's verse 2. And verse 3, if they're advantaged, if it's to their benefit that they've received circumcision, if it's to their benefit that they've received the, the Word of God, notice the question, verse 3, what then? If, if, if all this is true, then how should we respond? It's the very same thing that Paul says in verse 14. What shall we say then? It's the very same phrase. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Very same issue he's dealing with here. If, if some believe, that doesn't nullify God's faithfulness, does it? No, it's, it's Paul's way of affirming again. Absolutely not. God, God's faithfulness can't be nullified. In fact, notice verse 4, may it never be. Same phrase again. May, may it never come to fruition. Might it never come into existence. It's abhorrent to think that God is unfaithful. Verse 5, he'll do something very similar. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. In other words, through our unrighteousness, we see the magnitude of God's righteousness as He pours out His wrath against sin. What then shall we say? Same phrase. What should we say then? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? Verse 6, may it never be. Same phrase He again uses in in 9.14. May it never be. It's, It's abhorrent to think that God is unrighteous. Might, might we never have such a thought or such an idea? And Paul here is using the same expression he's used in chapter 3 to communicate the same truth. God is not unrighteous in His condemnation of sinners. In fact, in this passage, Paul is asserting that God is not unjust even when He has not chosen them for salvation. Even if He has not chosen them for salvation and they go to hell, that doesn't mean that God is unjust. In fact, what's important to notice here, and Paul uses the word injustice, he's talking about a violation of a a standard of right conduct. It's wrongdoing. It's, It's wickedness. It is unrighteousness. Paul's not asking, did God make a mistake like... Did, did God do something that was a non-moral error? That it was just a mistake in judgment or a mistake in plan unrelated to sin? Paul's not asking that. But Paul is asking, did God sin in what He did? Is God wrong? Is God morally culpable for what He did? That, that question goes against everything that the Scriptures reveal to us about who God is and what He is in His righteousness. So the Scriptures tell us that God has no capacity for injustice or evil. God is right in everything He does. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. 
and His mercies are over all His works. So everything that God does is good. There's nothing that He does that is unrighteous. Not, not only does God do righteous things, but He is also full of righteousness. Psalm 48, verse 10. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. So your right hand, the, where, where you act in your strength, so the things that you do out of your strength and your ability, it is full of righteousness. Not just an occasional righteous thing, but it's full of righteousness. And not only full of righteousness, but, but God's very nature is to be righteous. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright in are your judgments. In other words, not only do you do righteousness, but you are righteous. 119, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Not only is God righteous in His being, God is righteous in what He does, but God is also opposed to all unrighteousness so Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God in His righteousness, one of the manifestations of His righteousness is that He is opposed to everything that is unrighteous. Which puts man in a very difficult con- con- condition and place because we are by nature unrighteous. We come into this world underneath a condemnation because of our position in Adam. And then everything we do in our lives prior to salvation proves that we are in Adam and everything we do is unrighteous. So how will we ever be saved? How will we ever receive righteousness or have righteousness? 117 of Romans. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. If we will have righteousness, it will come not through anything we do, but only through faith in what God has accomplished on our behalf. I take the time to go through those verses and just to remind you of the position of God as righteous, to underline and underscore the statement that one commentator says about this verse the idea that God is unjust is unthinkable. How can you possibly think? that God would do anything that is unjust. And Paul answers that supposed question, that objection against God's elective act, with three answers. The first is in verses 15 and 16. God's elective mercy is in accord with God's justice. God's elective mercy is in accord with God's justice. As an affirmation that God is not unjust in election... Paul quotes in verse 15 from Exodus 33. For he says, for he, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me just remind you of where Exodus 33 comes in the narrative of the story of the nation of Israel. They've gone out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians are put behind them. And now they are... They are receiving the law of God. So Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. He's he's conversing with God, and God is writing the table of the law on the two stone tablets. 
And Moses is up there for an extended period of time. And the nation of Israel is getting nervous. And Aaron is getting nervous. And the nation of Israel comes to Aaron and says, Aaron, we think Moses is gone. He's never coming back. We need something to worship. Give us something to worship. And, and so Aaron says, bring me a bunch of gold coins and a bunch of gold artifacts. And, and he melts them down and he makes a golden calf and says, worship your God. And God in response to that rebellion, makes a command and 3,000 men were put to death. That's Exodus 32:25. And God, Moses intercedes for the nation. He comes down in anger, righteous anger, destroys the tablets, sees what's going on, sees the judgment of God, and then intercedes on behalf of the nation and asks God to yet fulfill His promises to the nation And God affirms an answer that yes, He will fulfill His promises to the nation, but He will still condemn the nation of Israel for their rebellion against Him. Uh, 32, 34, and 35. But go now, God says to Moses, lead the people where I told you. In other words, I will still fulfill my promises. You're still to lead the nation. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, In the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So God promised and said, I'm still going to keep my promises to Israel, but He also still judged that generation for their rebellion and their unbelief. Moses is a little bit tenuous. He's wanting to seek further affirmation from God that he will that God will provide for them so in chapter 33 we see that the people repent in verses 4 through 6 so the sons of Israel stripped themselves from their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward they stripped themselves in an act of repentance and brokenness they turned to God and Moses wants assurance again from God that that God will be favorable to him. So verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too... that this nation is your people. And he, God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he, Moses, said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he, God said, and this is the verse, part of the verse that Paul quotes in Romans 9, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion 
on whom I will show compassion. It is, it is God's way of saying to Moses, it is my prerogative to be merciful. It is my prerogative to be compassionate. And I will pour out my mercy and my compassion on those whom I choose to do. That's my prerogative. And that's what the apostle is quoting for us in Romans chapter 9 to remind us that God is a merciful God in his election. In fact, if you notice verse, verses 15 and 16 in Romans 9, just notice all the mercy talk. I will have mercy, one, on whom I'll have mercy, two. I'll have compassion, three, on whom I will have compassion, four. So it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, five. It's all, those verses are all about mercy, compassion, kindness. And those words mercy and compassion are very, very similar words. Um, mercy refers to God's activity, on behalf of the people in withholding his wrath against them and that mercy, that action on their behalf is driven by his compassion towards them. So he sees them in their sin and he sees their pitiable condition and, and seeing what, they, what condition they are in, he is moved towards them and then withholds his wrath and anger against them. This is all this is all about mercy. This is all about kindness. This is all about grace. It's Paul's way of saying as we think about election, what we need to be thinking about is mercy and kindness and compassion. And then he emphasizes that. Notice verse 16, he says, "So then." So he's quoted from Exodus 33 in verse 15. And when he says, so then, verse 16, he's giving us his interpretation or his explanation of how he is applying chapter 33 from Exodus in this context. His point is, it does not depend on the man who wills. So so salvation and election are not dependent on a man's will. It's not a man who says, I want to be saved and I am drawn and captivated by God. It's not on the man who desires and yearns and looks for God. And it is, it is not the man who runs. That is, it's not the man who has a desire for God and it's not a man who out of the overflow of his desire does something for good. Salvation is never on that basis but it is on the basis of God who has mercy. It's all about God's mercy. It is about God's action alone. It is about God's eternal action alone. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is doing here. The question has been in verse 14, is God unrighteous and unfair in His electing some to salvation? And Paul, in his answer, says, in so many words, wrong question. The question isn't, is God unrighteous in condemning those who are already condemned? The question is, why is God merciful? That's the real question. The real question is, why Why would God, looking at the mass of humanity, all people who are all under his condemnation, why would he deign to reach in and select out some? Why would he choose any? 
It is his prerogative to do that, Paul says, because he is a merciful kind of God. The question is, is God righteous in being merciful? Is God right in being merciful? Absolutely, God is right in being merciful. My friends, we should not be astounded that God condemns sinners that have been condemned and not chosen. We should be astounded that God has been merciful to anyone. Our tendency is to be indignant when God pours out His wrath and when people receive justice. My friends, we should not be astounded when that happens. We should be astounded when we receive mercy. We, we, should, we should be overwhelmed at God's amazing grace that has reached into our lives and compelled us to come to Him. I find the commentator Leon Morris very helpful here. God is not unjustly condemning Son, but in mercy, but in mercy saving some. We sinners have no claim on God, whatever. If we are saved, that is due to God's mercy, not the justice of our cause. To say that God is not just in His treatment of Jacob and Esau misses the point that neither Jacob nor Esau has a claim on God and that in both cases He acts in mercy. My friends, the answer to God's question, the question about the injustice of God's election is that any time God is merciful, it is in complete accord with His justice. He's acted rightly as well as kindly. There's a second answer given to us in verses, in verse 17, and it is that God's non-election is in accord with His justice. His non-election is in accord with His justice. Notice verse, 16, verse 14, excuse me, verse 15, he says, for he says to Moses, that word for, because, provides a transition from verse 14. So the objection is raised in verse 14, and he says, may it never be, why can Paul say, may that objection never be, because, verse 15, and then he gives the answer. Verse 17, he does the very identical structure, for, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for, because, may it never be, may this accusation about the injustice of God's elective purposes, may that, may that never be, because the scripture says something. And here he quotes from Exodus chapter 9. For this very purpose, God says through Moses to Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So, um, I just got lost in my notes. Here we are. I skipped a section, but that's okay. Um, the emphasis in this quotation is all about the activity of God. Um, Paul is quoting from Moses to help us to see that it is God behind the scenes working and functioning and acting. So verse 17 he says, uh, quoting from Exodus 9, For this very purpose 
I raised you up. Now, Pharaoh is raised up. The, the, the um, discussion there is about his position as king of Egypt. So he is the, the lead ruler in Egypt. And, and God says to him, I raised you up. I put you in that position. There was nothing that you did. There was nothing that you accomplished. There was nothing that you had by nature that made you to be fit for that position. The only reason that you are king of Egypt is because I put you there. And notice that both Exodus and Romans 9.17 say, for this very purpose. In other words, I had a plan and I was intentional, and I had a desire in raising you up to that position. In other words, you weren't king of Egypt out of some accidental or random act, but it was a purposeful act that I planned, and I ordained, and I purposed, and I developed. And and what was that plan, and what was that purpose? Verse 17, to demonstrate my power in you. Through Pharaoh's obstinate rebellion, God's greater power is revealed. So so as Pharaoh rebels against God, God's authority, God's dominion, God's sovereignty is revealed. In fact, we see that in Exodus chapter 15. So the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see the plagues against the nation of Egypt. And then finally... The nation of Israel leaves and they go across the Red Sea. And then in the Red Sea, as, as the Egyptians start crossing, the, the, the sea is made to go back to its right position. And the Egyptians that are chasing the Israelites are drowned. And then in chapter 15, Moses has a hymn of praise. And listen to what he says in this hymn of praise, Exodus 15, starting in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he, God, has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his, Pharaoh's officers, are drowned in the sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence... You overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. God, and we'll see this in just a minute, hardens Pharaoh so that he can demonstrate his authority and his power to overwhelm Pharaoh and his justice in judging Pharaoh, and thereby God is seen to be the God of eternity and God of the heavens. God's glory is raised up. In fact, that's Moses' point in 1511. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In saving Israel and in condemning Egypt and in condemning Pharaoh, God is raised up as glorious. We see God's glory by His condemnation of sin and His not choosing some to salvation. In fact, that's, that's the whole point of Psalm 106 as well that we read, that God's 
God's glory is revealed even in His protective hand over the nation of Israel throughout their rebellion against Him. So in summary, God has chosen and elected Pharaoh to his position as king of Egypt, but God has also not chosen Pharaoh to salvation, just as he did not choose Esau and Edom. God was using the non-election of Pharaoh to declare his power and authority over all men. And part of God's authority over all men is his right to judge them, even as he did with Pharaoh. And God God was not unjust when he condemned Pharaoh and judged Pharaoh. And God is not unjust when he condemns other sinners either. God's non-election does not mean that God is unjust. It fits perfectly with his justice, which is Paul's third answer that he gives us in verse 18. All God's desires are in accord with his justice. Again, he's quoted in verse 17, giving a a second reason for his may it never be in verse 14. Verse 18, again, he says, so then. So this this is Paul's application of that verse. This is how Paul understands us, understands how we are to use Exodus chapter 9. The conclusion is, the summary is, The way we are to understand Exodus 9 is that he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And the key word here in this verse is is the word desire. It's the word that is often translated will. So, So he has mercy on whom he wills. Said, frankly, more simply is he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's his will. It is his choice that is determinative. He is merciful towards those who, to whom he receives mercy because that is his intentional, purposeful plan. No one receives mercy apart from God willing them to receive mercy. And when he is merciful to them, they will respond in faith, trusting the Messiah in the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, or New Testament, looking backward to the arrival of the Messiah and his work on the cross. That is his mercy according to his will and his wanting and his desiring. Well, that, that, that part of the verse is easy, isn't it? It's the last part that gives us some trouble. And he hardens whom he desires. He hardens. The word harden means to be unyielding in resisting information. It means to render obstinate, to render stubborn. And here, I want you to notice verse 17, that the emphasis that Paul is making is not that mankind himself is hardened. We know that men are sometimes hardened against God, but that's not his point. His point is that God is the author of their hardness. God is the one who is sovereignly moving to make them hard. Pharaoh is a clear example of this, about God functioning and acting. There's there's much that is said in the book of Exodus about Pharaoh and his hardness. There is a sense in which Pharaoh has hardened himself. We see that in numerous passages in Exodus. Exodus 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. In other words, Pharaoh himself is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. 722, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them. So he himself hardened his heart and he did not listen. 815, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. 819, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32 of chapter 8, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and he did not let the people go. 9-7, Pharaoh sent and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. 9-34 and 35, when Pharaoh saw that the, that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his hearts, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So Pharaoh is behind his hardening. And yet, and yet, Exodus also denotes that something else is going on, that there's something beyond just Pharaoh's own resistance to God and hatred of God. Chapter 4, verse 21, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. In other words, when you get there, when you go back in, before anything has been revealed, God says, I want you to know this is what's going on. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So chapter 4, before Pharaoh does anything to indicate a hard heart, chapter 4, God preempts the promise and says, preempts the process and says, I will harden his heart. Chapter 7, verse 3, very similarly. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. I will harden Pharaoh and Keep him in his sin so that my glory will be on display. 9.12 And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. 10.1 Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs among them. In other words, before Pharaoh acted, I acted to harden his heart. Chapter 10, verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. 10.27, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. All of these things are a sober um, reminder to us that God is sovereignly acting to keep Pharaoh in his rebellion. And there's an element of this that's a mystery. How is God sovereign? And yet man is still responsible for his actions. We see numerous things like this in the, in the scriptures. We see God is sovereign over the sin of Judas and God is sovereign over the events of the cross and yet men are responsible for their crucifixion of Christ. 
But but Paul has already given us so it's, so there is a sense in which there's a mystery that we just we don't understand. But Paul has also given us a hint as to how this can be, and it's given to us in chapter one. Remember chapter one. Um, God has revealed Himself to all of mankind, so creation and conscience, we see the nature of God. And and those who were against God didn't want to bow before Him. They didn't want to honor Him. They didn't want to glorify Him. They didn't want to give thanks to Him. They wanted to be king and they wanted to be sovereign. Chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to a degrading passion, for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do these things which are not proper. How how does this work? It works this way. Man is already born into sin and in rebellion. And, and, and that rebellion can reach such a stage that God says, if that is what you want, that is what I will give you. And He hardens them in that. It's part of His judgment against them. It is part of His wrath against them. If, if, that, if, if, it, if it is sin that you want, then I condemn you, Romans one twenty four to your sin. I harden you to your sin and in your sin. Friends, it is really helpful for us to remember that in Romans chapter 1, those people do not want God. They are rebellious against Him. They hate Him. And friends, the same was true of Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not want God. Pharaoh wanted rebellion against God. Pharaoh was not neutral to God. Pharaoh, like us, was born in sin and opposed to God. He never wanted God. He never desired God. And God said, if that is where you want to be, then I will harden you in that. And the resulting judgment was entirely what Pharaoh deserved. God was completely just in carrying out that action of of judgment. And what was true of Pharaoh is true of all men. God is sovereign in His elective purposes of all men. Listen, friends, listen carefully. No one, no one is hardened against His will. No one, no one who is hardened, Pharaoh included, can say, well, I would, I would have moved to God if He would have just allowed me. No. They were hardened. They did not want Him. They were rebellious against Him. They were bitter against Him. Everyone who is hardened gets exactly what he wants. And some, some, who are against God and rebellious to him, God in his mercy plucks out for salvation from what they deserve, from his wrath. Understand these are heavy truths. How should we think about this? How should we think about divine election? Let me just give you a half dozen quick thoughts. Be confident in God's faithfulness to His promises. That's what He wants us to know. God is faithful. When He elects and when He chooses, He is faithful to bring to salvation those whom He chooses. Even when some reject Him, God is faithful. Have a a God-sized view of God. Understand that He is sovereign over all events in our lives. Everything is under His control. Everything is 
is under His dominion. Trust that God will always do what is right. That's why we spent the time we did to unfold His righteousness. He cannot do what is wrong. He cannot do what is evil in any way toward you. Trust Him with that. His election is righteous. His non-election is righteous. Here's an important one. Do not be introspective. When I first wrote this, I wrote, do not be overly introspective. In other words, do not, do not look inside and say, I wonder, I wonder if I'm elect. That is not why God gave us this truth. God did not give us this truth so we would walk around saying, well, I wonder if he's elect, I wonder if he's elect. I don't think he's elect, so I'm not going to preach the gospel to him. That's not why He gave us this truth. He gave us this truth so that He could pull back the curtains of heaven, as it were, and help us to see the inner workings of the Godhead and see how it is that we who were undeserving of salvation have been brought by Him to salvation. And the question then is, well, how do I know if, I, if I'm elect? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, then you're elect. Not because of your belief, but because He chose you and drew you and called you and wooed you. And friend, if you don't believe today, how do you know if you will ever be elect? Believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus today, though you have rejected Christ until this time, if you believe in Jesus today, it means that from the foundation of the earth, He has chosen you for salvation. This isn't, this isn't to be used by us to walk around and say, well, I wonder if he's in and he's out or she's in and she's out. No, 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 no. Just believe in Jesus and then if you believe, know that this is how God accomplished your salvation. Fifthly, be warned about the consequences of unbelief. It's horrid. It's just as heavy as I've made it to sound. And frankly, far worse than I've made it to sound today. There is condemnation for those who do not believe, and it is a just condemnation. And then lastly, worship and give thanks if you are saved. All of this instruction is given to us to produce joy in our salvation and worship the God of our salvation. 11.36, as Paul wraps up this section, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him Be the glory forever. Amen. He would have us to know these truths so that we glorify God more greatly. Our Father, may that be the very thing that happens in us this morning. That because of this truth, that we glory in you and delight in you. I understand these things are hard. There's a weightiness to them. But there's also a delight to them as we see how you have worked contrary to our natural will and you have taken those who would never choose you and you have chosen us to be your children. Amazing grace indeed. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.